I spent so much time drawing her when she was alive, and now I draw her when she's not alive, but in my drawing, she is alive again. And it's a very wonderful thing that drawings can actually bring her back to life and I can spend an afternoon with my mother. And that's kind of a happy ending here because most stories about death, the narrative arc is straight down and then that's the end. But here, it's actually cheerful because I really can resurrect her whenever I need her. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. Where we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. Before she started making comics, internationally acclaimed cartoonist Sharon Rosenzweig taught painting and printmaking at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago for more than a decade. Along with her husband, comedian Aaron Freeman, Sharon co-created an irreverent graphic version of the Bible's first five books titled The Comic Torah, Reimagining the Very Good Book. Aaron and Sharon also co-authored the book, How to Say I Love You, in 30 Languages. But for the past six years, Sharon has been making comics about her mother and what Sharon refers to as, quote, our adventures with Alzheimer's disease. When her mother entered hospice, Sharon established a daily practice of drawing her mother and her caregivers as a way to connect with her when other forms of communication were lost. But then, after her mother died, Sharon found it impossible to continue work on her graphic memoir. She found the way back to her art through a warm-up ritual suggested by cartoonist Linda Berry. Sharon Rosenzweig joins us today from Chicago to tell us about that ritual, how it helped to process her grief, and about how she's using comics to tell stories about illness and health. Sharon Rosenzweig, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Wow, that was really beautifully done. Thank you. So, as someone who's not a cartoonist, but grew up reading Mad Magazine and tried my hand at copying some of the images on the page, I really admire the detail in your work. The fine lines and the tiny handwriting, even the handwriting of the narration and the colors are really rich. I'm wondering what got you started on cartooning after what sounds like mostly painting and printmaking. I met Aaron and we got married and he wanted to do these projects and he was just doing them by himself and he doesn't have any art background. So he was just pulling images off the internet and some photographs and whatnot and putting them into his work. Because um, uh-huh. he, he was, he was trying to make comics like How to Say I Love You in 30 Languages and uh-huh. the comic, to- comic tour came later. But he was so bad at it and I thought I could help. <laughs> so so we started working together that way. And he really taught me, even though he's a comedian, he's not an artist, but he's just a tinkerer. And, and he had a, a Mac computer and, it, and they came out with Comic Life, a program for the Mac that, oh, wow. where you can pull in text boxes and images and speech balloons and any, all these different kinds of stuff that you can uh, arrange the page any way you want, like with panels. Uh-huh. So he was really excited about making different things. And, and that's really how I got started. So we, he taught me how to use Photoshop because at first I would make drawings and we would scan them into his computer and he would be manipulating them on Photoshop and I'd be standing over his shoulder telling him what to do. Hmm. And that was really very uncomfortable. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, so, so I had to learn it myself and he helped me. And at first I was drawing with my mouse and I made a bunch of really bad drawings like that. 
And Aaron kept pushing me. Like at one point, he bought me the tablet and the stylus that I use now. Like he bought me this really early on, like maybe 2007 or something. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, please don't make me learn to use Photoshop. But, you know, a lot of people who aren't drawers are really intimidated by the whole idea of cartooning. I know I am. So were you intimidated to even try it? No, you know, I think that I was really excited to try it because my paintings and prints and drawings from the very beginning had always been kind of narrative. Like I was Mm -hmm. always trying to tell stories about my family, but I didn't really study like writing. I think that was my big problem. I I love to read, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know anything about structure, story structure. I knew a lot about painting structure, but not about narrative. So because it was really discouraged, like all the time that I was in school, painting was not supposed to be narrative. And, And so my attempts at narrative painting were not met with praise. Uh-huh. But my paintings were always in sequences, like series of things that were kind of related. But I was lacking in any kind of like narrative structure. Huh. So working with Aaron helped me, you know, because he knew something about that, too. Yeah. So I was very excited that way. And I didn't have to do the whole thing myself. The sphere of the blank page thing, I was relieved of that because mm-hmm. my husband started it. <laughs> uh-huh. So I yeah. was just contributing. Partnering has always been good for me. You know, mm. I, I love collaborating. Mm-hmm. So in the notes to one of your pieces in the Annals of Internal Medicine, you're identified as, quote, an investigative cartoonist. I love that <laughs> phrase, and I would love for you to define that for us. It's such a great phrase, investigative cartoonist. Well, I stole it from Paul Krasner, who was the editor of The Realist, mm-hmm. um, and he also invented the word yippies. Uh-huh. And he oh. described himself as he's a, he was an investigative comedian. So I really like that. Just the idea of looking into stuff. And I think that when I named myself that, it was when I was doing Occupy Wall Street. There was a branch in Chicago. And so Aaron and I went down there like, you know, a few days and he made videos of the people. But I drew people and talked to them and made comics. So each person had like, I would draw them and their sign and then they would have a speech balloon and they would be identified. That's and I did like a whole bunch of those, like maybe 45 in Chicago. And then I went to New York and did Zuccotti Parks for a couple of days. And mm-hmm. so there was another whole bunch of those. And those got shared a lot around the world. And then I did a series, not a very long series, but I did two different comics about keeping chickens illegally in Highland Park. Uh-huh. One of them in the annals and another one was about like a family that was keeping them here. And it was an undercover investigator because people had to talk to me on the down right, low. Right. <laughs> So funny. And I feel like I feel like my project now is still investigative cartooning, but I'm just investigating my own self and my relationship with my mother and mm-hmm. you know our family dynamics and all these things that have always been really interesting to me. Well, let's go back to the chickens for a minute because you did do a comic called Mom's Flock. The comic panels you created about the baby chickens that you bought for your mom. I've read that chickens are calming. Is that why you brought them in? And tell us a little bit about Mom's Flock cartoon. Well, we read that animals could be useful for people with Alzheimer's, and we tried a cat, and she really hated it, and she would it didn't work out, okay? And she didn't like dogs around her either, so it seemed like she didn't like stuff in the house. But it was really just a coincidence, because I got chickens for myself, but I knew she liked birds, and she was in a bad state. Like, she was not opening her eyes, mm. not sitting up, not eating, not drinking. She wasn't really that sick, but she had just withdrawn, and so... Mm-hmm. I got the idea of bringing a couple of my new baby chicks over to her to see how that would go, you know, Mm -hmm. and it went really well. I think I just put them in her hand Mm -hmm. and said, Mom, open your eyes. Come on, open your eyes. There's baby birds here. And so she did sort of open one eye and she saw them and she said, 
are they boys or girls, male or female? Because <laughs> she did tend to gender everything. <laughs> but as so I said, no, they're, they're both girls. They're little chickens, and they'll grow up and give us eggs. And so she said, well, the boy pestering the girl, she's trying to sleep, and he won't let her. And she was just like off to the races explaining to me about the chickens and what they were thinking and wow. what they were doing, which is not unusual, actually. Like people with, who don't have Alzheimer's do the same thing of explaining to each other what the chickens are thinking, what the chickens are doing, and why they're doing that. You, you can't resist. It's like watching TV. I mean, they're, they are calming, but they're also really entertaining. Uh-huh. It went so well that I got chickens from my mother. She had caregivers there who were familiar with chickens from their past in Poland and in the Philippines, and they were very excited about having chickens. Oh, wow, that's so it really worked out great for them because it kept them from being so bored. I'll bet. In one of the panels, and I like how you identify the figures for us, Larry, the firstborn, Uh Uh, the nighttime caregiver, Chris, he says, in Warsaw, my chicken and I shared a single potato. (laughs) There's there's humor in all of these. So at this point, how far into the Alzheimer's was your mom when you created this comic? I think that's like around 2012. So the first time I noticed that there was anything wrong with my mother was in like 1999 mm-hmm. when she and I took a trip to France together uh-huh. and she invited me to go, said she was going to pay for everything, said that in the afternoons she would need to rest and I could go out by myself. And we were going to rent a car and she said that I would drive and she would navigate. Okay. So none of that. Well, she did pay for everything, but she had way too much anxiety to let me go off by myself. You know, she would just say, well, if you're not back in an hour, I'm going to call the police and she couldn't navigate at all. Like she was just telling me the plots of old movies when we're driving around and really wasn't capable of looking at the map and figuring out what was going on. Okay. So that's sort of basically it. But I started thinking that there was something wrong with her huh. or there was something wrong with me uh-huh. <laughs> then. So this is like 12 years later, 12 years, 13, 14 years, something like that, that she has deteriorated a lot. But she lived until 2016. So it was still like five years, four or five years before she died. But she was in pretty good shape. I mean, really, she was in pretty good shape. It, it was this business where she would just sort of check out, happened repeatedly, and there was a lot of different things that we pulled in to arouse her out of this kind of state that she would sink into. You know, we had different kind of tricks that we used over the years to re-engage her with life. But so the chickens were the first of a series of things like that. Mm-hmm. But the chickens worked so great. And that summer, you know, while they're growing up, we had them out on her patio and she would sit out there and I would sit and draw her and write down everything she said because she was really talking a lot. Wow. And she was making sense in a strange way, like making her own kind of sense. And you could see how smart she had been in, in, in her vocabulary choices and stuff. And that, you know, she was thinking about the social order of the chickens, like saying, oh, look, the black one and the white one and the speckled one, they're all getting along so well, you know, and uh, they don't try to push each other out of the way. They just wait till the other one's done, then they do it, but they all want to be part of it. She was interested interested in sort of why they do what they do and they just wanted to be part of something. That's what she she decided looking at them. They all just want to be part of something. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what she was like before Alzheimer's and how different she was. Well, the things that were the same, actually, she was always very funny, very witty uh-huh. in a sharp way, like a biting way. And she kept that. So she kept her humor and she kept her critical faculty. Like she never wanted you to think that you were pulling something over on her or that she didn't see what was going on here, really. you know. Mm-hmm. And she had a very direct kind of honesty about your appearance. Mm-hmm. You know, but she would laugh at stuff. You know, she would laugh at my jokes and my clothes and my hair. You know, in the end, she would laugh 
anything and everything. But she was always the funniest Rosenzweig, like she, in, in this kind of off-the-cuff, uh-huh. biting way. She was really smart, I think. It, she was very verbal. Like when, when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, the doctor said that her verbal score in terms of the breadth of her vocabulary and uh-huh. ability to use words correctly mm-hmm. was very high for someone her age, even without the Alzheimer's. In Mom's Block, I feel like that's a really good demonstration of how she had vocabulary, even though she was clearly losing her marbles, you know. But she lost her ability to speak at all, pretty much. Mm -hmm. You know, she could laugh. But then actually, at the very end of her life, when she was in hospice, and they put her on oxygen and some other medicines, she could talk again all of a sudden. And it was really cool that we got to hear her voice. And she made Mm -hmm. tiny amounts of sense sometimes. I mean, she really did. Sometimes she was really right there. So... And how old was she when she died? 93. 93. And your dad had died prior to that, Mo. Yeah, he died like in 06 of a different brain disease. But it turned out that he actually did have stage 3 Alzheimer's as well. But he had PSP, progressive supranuclear palsy. So they both had brain disorders. That's why I have pressure on me to get my book done because I have to do it before I lose my marbles. Oh, do you feel... I can feel my... Do you feel like you I are do, actually. To? I feel like there's time pressure. So I'm 64, mm-hmm. and I think mom was like 76 at that trip to France when she started losing. So I don't, uh-huh. I, you know, there's no guarantee that this is going to happen to me, obviously. But my aunt also had it, and, you know, my dad, in addition to him, the one that actually killed him. So yeah. I try to take care of my brain. Uh-huh. <laughs> are, you, are you worried about yourself? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I am. I am too. But I, but I also know that there really isn't that much that you can do about it. I just did a piece for the book about the neurology of Alzheimer's. Uh-huh. And I worked with Peggy Mason, who teaches medical neurobiology at University of Chicago. So okay. she teaches neuroscience to medical students. And, and she appears in my comic and explains the situation according to what's known right now. So I know like by the time this book gets finished and comes out, it's going to be outdated. I'll probably, I'll probably have to redo go, it because I mean, they her. are learning stuff. Yeah. Go back to her and redo that panel. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a few pages. Oh, oh, oh boy, that's going to be a project. Okay. Kind of a... <laughs> <laughs> so I think people would probably be interested to know about this ritual that got you drawing again. If you could talk about that, oh. uh, the warm-up ritual that yeah. got you started to draw again. Okay, well, like you said, after my mom died, well, I spent a lot of time moving objects around, but I stopped working. And when I tried to work on this graphic novel I'd been working on for a couple of years, I just hated the drawings so much. I just didn't like anything about them. And I would discipline myself to try to do it, but my heart really wasn't in, into it. So I didn't. And then, so she died September 30th. And January 1st, I hadn't really made anything in those months. And I had read the Linda Berry book, Syllabus. And I had used this exercise as a way of starting my drawing day. And the exercise is just drawing a spiral. And the the point of it is to relax and concentrate and get your hand moving. So you just pick a tool, put your pencil or whatever it is down and make a dot and then start moving it around either clockwise or counterclockwise. I alternate those. Mm -hmm. And you try to keep the lines as close together without touching because as Linda Berry says, if they touch, you get electrocuted. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you focus really hard. And, and, you know, for me, it was just wonderful. I would sort of go into this trance-like state very quickly and just focus on the point of the pen where the ink is coming off and, and hitting the page and just follow that around. And mm. it was a magical thing. But 
my eyes would lose their ability to focus so closely. So I was drawing the spirals a lot longer than Linda intended us to. Like for her, the spiral is going to make maybe like 10 rotations. You only spend a few minutes on it because it really only takes a few minutes to get your hand moving and to sort of get your brain into a different spot. Mm -hmm. But I really enjoyed that so much. I just kept going. But when my eyes would give out, then I'd look out the window and draw what was out there. So those things sort of came into the drawings. So they weren't pure spirals for more than a couple of weeks. Well, I should say that after I do the first one, I put it on Facebook. And that was January 1st. And January 2nd, I did it again and put it on Facebook. And my girlfriend said, oh, are you going to be posting one every day for the whole year? Mm. <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> and she said, because if you do, I will too. So we made a little path, I guess. that We would both post a drawing every day on Facebook. And she did other. She actually was drawing off of what I was drawing. But she didn't hang in there. But mm -hmm. I really liked having a daily practice, and it was doing great things for me, so I kept going. And other things came into the drawings. Like, first it was the chickens that were out my window, and the dog, and the chairs, and whatnot. And then, like, I started looking at my books, and including things from Hebrew manuscript illuminations, which is something I've always loved looking at. Hmm. And I like the flatness of that. Like, mm -hmm. So the spirals open up the page spatially. That was a big surprise, because when I'm looking at the ink coming off of the pen and onto the page. I'm not really seeing anything besides that. But when I would stop and rest my eyes and then look back at them, it looked like a page was convex or concave, like it was moving all over the place. So I'd like put in a horizon line and, oh, and ground wow. them. And then mm -hmm. they were they were like portals. It, it looked mm -hmm. like you could enter into a different kind of space through them. Mm -hmm. And I was very excited about that space and, and about what could live in that space and how you could manipulate that space. So, you know, having the chickens come in, did it one kind of thing and having which was increasing the depth. And then with the manuscript illuminations, it was establishing a flat plane mm -hmm. that those things could work off of. Mm -hmm. And then once I had the manuscript illuminations, it was not a big step to looking at my old drawings that I hated so much. Mm -hmm. But I realized I could use those as source material too. And I didn't have this emotional reaction to them. I didn't hate them so much. I could just say, oh, this, this will be a source material for today's drawing. Mm -hmm. Because when you have to produce one every day, I felt like, okay, good, this will be a good idea, and I won't be bored trying to make yet another spiral drawing. Mm -hmm. So it was a really great thing, because one of the things I hated about my drawings was just the way they looked, and this was a whole new look. You're talking about the drawings before your mom died. It sounds like there were two separate phases yeah. of this book, before your mom died right. then after. So the drawings were separate, right. then you're saying, in terms of the, yeah. their composition. Okay. I had all these pencil drawings that... In order to make finishes out of the pencil drawings, I would have scanned them into the computer and then worked them up in Photoshop mm -hmm. like I had done for all my previous comics. Like the Comic Toro, I, I developed that process. The Comic Toro was published in 2010, and I'd been trying to find a different way of working since then, like unsuccessfully really, but just a new look, a new vocabulary. And that's what I ultimately found with this, that just black and white, pen and ink and wash, a really limited vocabulary, but it allows me to make finishes in real life and then just scan the finish in rather than finishing them in Photoshop. Because hmm. then you lose the touch, the hand print, you know, the sort of fingerprint is, to me, much more beautiful in something that's made with pen and ink than something that's made with Photoshop. It's totally idiosyncratic. You know, there's many, many ways of doing it, but I was looking for a new way, and, and I found it through this process. That's really cool. So can we expect to see a book that is visually really different towards the end than it is from the beginning? Okay. No, I don't think so, because... Okay. 
So I spent 2017 making a drawing a day, and it got into this material about halfway through the year. And I, you know, I did things about my childhood, growing up with my mother. I did things about my mother's death. But every day, I just drew whatever I wanted to. Mm-hmm. I wasn't looking toward this being a continuous thing. It was just put this in the pile. So afterwards, then I have like 300 drawings. Oh my so then it's this sort of overwhelming idea of trying to organize this somehow into a coherent narrative. Mm-hmm. And I was really at a loss to do that. Because, you know, with the comic Torah, people say, hey, you've already written a book. You must know how to do it. But with the comic Torah, we had the Torah. Our structure was set, you know, right, right. and we, we could do a lot of stuff within that. But we knew exactly what order everything was going to go in. Yeah. And this is not like that at all. So I was really stymied. But I took a writing class last winter that helped me a lot because that's, that's always been the missing piece here. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you tell the story? So I learned a lot from the writing class. One thing that I learned, my teacher is Goldie Goldblum, and she's a novelist, and she's really cool and wonderful. And when it was my turn to be critiqued, she brought out a bunch of graphic novels and had us all look and see what happened on the first page. And we reported back that on the first page, the scene was set. And you, you saw the character from a distance, basically. Mm-hmm. And she talked about five levels of interaction with a character. And, and level one is this business of setting the stage, you, you know, the establishing shot. Right. And level five is you're inside the character's head, hearing what they're thinking and what they would never say to anybody aloud. So the most intimate. And yeah. the levels two, three, and four, you can imagine. Mm-hmm. So her critique of my work, which I had turned in this, you know, sort of, 40 pages of spiral drawings that were the most narrative Mm -hmm. for my critique. And she said, there was no level one at all. There was no establishing shot. Mm -hmm. You never knew where or when you were, Mm -hmm. which is true because for the whole project, I was just inside my own head pulling stuff out. And I was actually aware of that and grateful I didn't have to do it because I didn't want to be drawing settings. Mm -hmm. But that was a problem for her. And that she also said there was precious little level five. Mm-hmm. where you're really inside hmm. somebody's head. Hmm. And I, she thought I swerved, where it sort of left it to the reader, swerved away from really telling what was really going on with me. And I kind of feel like, well, maybe that was a function of putting them up on Facebook every day, that I, I knew where they were going, you know? Yeah. So when 2017 was over, I stopped putting things up on Facebook anymore. And I'm just, I've just been working and trying to make sure everything, that there was a level one, there was a level five mm-hmm. in every little story, sometimes mm-hmm. every page. Mm-hmm. So that's helped me. And then, you know, like I hired her to be my development editor and try to help me because she thought she saw a through line, like a way to do a through line. And yeah. she's going to coach me through that. So I'm working on that now, but it is daunting. That's why I feel like, oh, gosh, I hope this works out. I'm not, not well, sure. I, you know? Yeah, you've, and there's so much going on there for you emotionally, too. I mean, you're expressing so much in these comics. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how they worked as therapy for you, apart and aside from the spiral aspect, but the narrative mm, part mm-hmm. of it. How did that help you? Oh, wow. It took really a long time before I could do the stuff about my mom's death. The spirals allowed me to deal with the material because they sort of put me into a different headspace mm-hmm. and it's a trance-like headspace. Mm-hmm. And so if I would make drawings about like the last 30 days of my mom's life that were really emotional and it would be uncomfortable, I could retreat and just draw the spirals for a while. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the emotions would sort of funnel through the spirals and be released. So I feel like it was a super effective way to mourn it because it was a safe place. Like my, my drawings every day, I could come into my little closet where I work and let these things come up. I wasn't going to be destroyed by it. I was going to be able to make something. And it felt like a healthy release that was also productive. Mm -hmm. Like I got something beautiful out of it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got a place to put my stories. I don't know. I feel like the work of grieving could be in making stories like as a, as a receptacle for the things you don't want to lose. Like I don't want to, re- I don't want to forget. Yeah. So I want to put these things somewhere in yeah. an album, in a book, in a drawing. And when I'm drawing her, my mom's alive again. I spent so much time drawing her when she was alive. And now I draw her when she's not alive. But in my drawing, she is alive again. And it's a very wonderful thing that drawings can actually bring her back to life. And I can spend an afternoon with my mother. And she's mine. I can do whatever I want with her. You know, I can take her anywhere in my drawings. And that's kind of a happy ending here. Because most stories about death, the narrative arc is straight down. And then that's the end. But here, it's actually cheerful because I really can resurrect her whenever I need her. I would like to have you talk a little bit about this wonderful piece in the annals called Judgment Call, where you tell the story of your mother's collapse. So my mom was a really strong magnet, and we all have four brothers and me and some grandchildren. We all live in Chicago, and we would all go over to my mom's house every Sunday night. I think this started because it was just easier to visit in a group. And you know, I heard my brothers were going, so I went too, and it became a family thing. that Every week we went there. And that was something that we all really valued. So one of these Sunday nights, she just collapsed. Her head just went down into her spaghetti. And I think there was a, like a one-second pause before my oldest brother, who's 6'11 and weighs like 240, and my mom was this frail little thing. I mean, he gets up and starts doing the Heimlich maneuver. You know, he broke some ribs but did not get a response. Then he cleared out her mouth and then put her on the floor and started doing CPR. So, I mean, he's just this great big guy mm-hmm. working on her. And while he's doing that, he's thinking, wait, is this, is this even the right thing to do? Because she could be brain damaged now. And if she dies now in 2010, there's no inheritance tax. That was so funny you know, to read. It, it, if, we, if we bring her back, she might be brain damaged. So this is kind of interesting because when I decided I want to do this comic, I realized that I needed to hear what my oldest brother, Larry, was thinking. I needed to know what the caregiver, Stephen, was thinking. And my uncle, Dick, shows up later on, too. So... I actually interviewed all those people and taped everything they said and transcribed it and used verbatim the stuff. Anything that's coming out of somebody else's mouth is a result of an interview. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that really made it richer because I would have no way of knowing that Larry was worried about the inheritance taxes while he was trying to resuscitate my mother. But it's hilarious. But, but, and, I mean, it's, it's such dark humor. <laughs> It is. My brother is, is also very funny. And when he was telling me about, you know, that he jumped up to do this Heimlich maneuver, well, my brother calls it the Hemlock maneuver. <laughs> the Hemlock <laughs> Which seems, I mean, I just love that, too, because he could have been killing her. He could easily have been killing her right then. And she was already pretty advanced Alzheimer's, although he, my brother also pointed out that that year she could still sign her name, which she lost the ability to do any kind of writing. So right. she was still fun to be around and talkative and stuff. So Stephen, who's the, our a weekend caregiver who was there and he, he's in my comics a lot because he's a very funny character he's thinking to himself somebody should really you know do the mouth to mouth and like oh that would be me uh-huh. so, and he did do the mouth to mouth and they resuscitated her and the paramedics came and brought her to the hospital and I am her agent for healthcare, so I go too and spend the night there and everything and then mm-hmm. we're faced with the decision of the pacemaker because it turns out that that's what she needed that her heart just was beating way too slowly Mm-hmm. to maintain life. But a pacemaker would solve it. And she had said she didn't want anything invasive, though. But the cardiologist says a pacemaker is not invasive. You just slip it under the skin. Mm-hmm. And he wants to schedule surgery immediately. So I said, well, I have to talk to my family. And my uncle was really against it. He was like, 
you know, we had aunts who had died of Alzheimer's and they'd gotten mean and mm-hmm. horrible and had to be institutionalized. And he says, I'm not going to tell you what to do with your mother, but if it was me, you shouldn't have even called the ambulance. And he was really clear about it. Mm-hmm. And that was really tough because I couldn't reach anybody else. And I had to make a decision and I really didn't know what to do, but I felt like I just wasn't ready to give up my mom. Yeah. So, but luckily I was spared the whole thing because when I went back to my mom's room, she was awake, which she hadn't been up till then. And I could say, mom, are you happy? Do you want to stay alive? And she said, yes, I do. And so I said, okay, <laughs> well then you're going to get a pacemaker, you know? I mean, it was basically a self-serving thing, but, but I don't think any of us were really ready to let her go. She was the glue that held us together, and, yeah. and once she was gone, we, we wouldn't be seeing each other either, really. So she had a lot of value to us. So she did get the pacemaker. But she did get the pacemaker, and in my last panel, it's five years later, and we're all still gathering it on a Sunday night, and the beat goes on. Yeah. And she was 87 at the time you yeah. did that comic. You referred to the panel where... Larry says, the thought balloon is, and this is what he's thinking, not what he's saying aloud, right? Right. As he's trying to resuscitate her, as he's giving her CPR, is this a good idea? There's no estate tax this year. I don't want her to be a vegetable when she could die estate tax-free, but we really like her. (laughs) (laughs) That's quote-unquote. Wow, that's a straight quote. I mean, your emotions are all over the place. You write, mom was 87, deep into Alzheimer's disease. Now her heart was winding down. Maybe it's time to let her go, save her dignity, let her pass painlessly. My little mommy doll, she still has her personality. She laughs at my jokes. Your emotions are all over the place, exactly as I would expect them to be in the moment. And I love how you convey that in the comic. Thank you. I did worry that you take away this easy way out and then what are you what are you sentencing her to? Is she gonna just be like a skeleton in diapers? Yeah. And just how what will be? I was always really confused about how do you die of forgetting? What does that mean? You know, yeah. just because you can't remember. And I I was dreading what the end would be like for her, having taken away this easy one. Uh huh. So that was part of my dilemma. Yeah. Back then, and it turned out that it wasn't that bad. Right, and you were drawing her until her last breath, says one of the things I printed out. So we've been talking about what is formally known as graphic medicine, which sounds intimidating, but it is simply defined as the use of comics to tell stories of illness and health. Sharon, you've been doing this now for a little while. Can you talk a, a little bit about what are the advantages of using comics to convey this information about health, apart and aside from the therapeutic value for you as somebody who was going through this really difficult time with your mom? How do you view comics in terms of the advantages? Wow. Well, as a maker, I'm able to so broaden the emotional vocabulary in all the different choices. Like in the the comic we were just talking about, it's got its own special kind of unusual palette of color that sets the tone for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like my drawings can convey things that I just could not convey in words. And it's way more efficient and it invites a very efficient use of text as well. Like I try to be extremely efficient so mm-hmm. so that your story is easy to eat. You know, it doesn't require a lot from the viewer and I try to make them beautiful to seduce someone into having an experience that they might not have otherwise wanted to have because mm. it looks like they're going to be easy to read and a fun romp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the first advantage is to come to mind as someone who wants to be a storyteller about why I'd rather do it with pictures. It it happens to be something that I can do, like I've studied drawing a whole lot, but I know from like the work of M.K. Serwick that you don't have to 
have that kind of background to tell your stories. Like uh, MK gives out crayons and paper at her workshops and people who've never drawn before are able to express their feelings. You know, at one of these graphic medicine conferences, there was a guy who was working at the VA with Mm -hmm. people who actually hospitalized with PTSD. Mm -hmm. And he was working with them to create a comic for them. Like he was an artist and they would tell him the story and he would make a comic and he would say for each frame, like, is it an up mouth or a down mouth? Like what's the mouth doing? What are the eyes doing? What are the hands doing? And with those three things, he could make basically a stick figure that would convey the emotion that was needed for that frame. So Mm -hmm. he kept it super simple. And I always think about that now when I'm making a drawing, like, okay, well, what are the eyes doing? What is the mouth doing? What are the hands doing? And if you can hit that right, you're going to go a long way to conveying something. Mm. So this is just to say that I have had a lot of art training in my background, a lot of practice, but it's not really required drawing spirals, you definitely don't need to have any art training to do that. Mm -hmm. And this other technique that I use, like during my mom's last 30 days of blind contour drawing, is another thing that anybody can do. And if if you have any interest in learning to draw or starting to draw, this is a great way to start. Quickly, what it is, is you have your eye on your subject while you're making a drawing, not on your pen. It's like the opposite of the spiral drawing Uh in that way. So as you move your pen, you you fix your eye on part of the outline of your subject, say on the tip of her nose, Mm -hmm. and you move your eye, say up the nose toward the eyebrow. And as you move your eye, you move your pen. So you're developing a hand-eye coordination by doing this exercise. It's a drawing one exercise. Hmm. And you can cheat and look like when you come to the end of a certain contour, like it just stops there. Mm -hmm. You can pick up your pen and, you know, look back at your paper and decide where you're going to put it down next and what line you're going to do next. Mm -hmm. But they're going to look wonky and that's how they're supposed to look. But it's such an intimate connection that you make with your subject when you draw that way, because not literally, but it feels like literally touching them. Mm, And you can, you know, you would go into a nostril, which you would never do in real life. You know, Mm -hmm. you explore the contours that you wouldn't actually touch. It's super hmm. intimate. This is called blind contour drawing. Yeah, if One you Google that, you would get a better description of the exercise <laughs> than what I just did. Because it's a known thing. It's really like every beginning drawing class would have you do this. Well, I was actually going to ask you for people who are intimidated even by the idea of drawing. What advice or encouragement can you give them? Where do they begin? Is that a good place to begin with blind contour drawings? It doesn't really matter where you begin. I mean, MK has you just pick up crayons and start drawing, you know, telling your story. Just do it would be one thing with the most simple tool that you have at hand. And think about if you want to tell a story, what is your character feeling, including are the hands up or down? What are the, you know, what are the hands doing? What are the eyes doing? What's the mouth doing mm-hmm. in telling your story? You could try simple formats like before and after. Just draw two drawings, before and after. Mm-hmm. Or say, do beginning, middle, and end. Do simple little formats. Or you can fold the paper into a bunch of frames and to a longer story. And then I think the spirals are a great way if you're afraid to just get your hand moving on the paper mm-hmm. and see what happens next. And I think that blind contour is a great way to connect with something you want to connect with. For me, it was my mom. And the other thing in that situation I didn't mention that, that I'd like to is that it's very difficult to spend long periods of time with somebody who's sick, you know, and who's basically sleeping all the time. Mm-hmm. So I used to knit or read, but that takes you out of their space. And drawing her kept me really connected and I could sit there longer. Like my brothers, I understood why they didn't come that much during that month because what were they going to do once they were there? She was, she was only awake some very small amount of time. But for me, it gave me a way to really be there and be connected. You don't have to even worry about telling stories to do graphic medicine in that way. 
And like that mom's flock, the one we were talking about at the very beginning with the chickens, mm-hmm. there's a narrative in there, but then there's four panels that are just the result of me sitting and right. drawing and writing down everything she said. And that's considered graphic medicine, you know? Right. It's recording. Yeah. So that's something anybody could do. Yeah. You referred earlier to your dad's illness, PSP, and the last ride of Mo Rosenzweig, which you gave me when we met, is really beautiful. The colors are so vibrant. And I learned something that I didn't know about progressive supranuclear palsy. And this, to me, is like a beautiful example of a story well told, conveying information about health that I never would have known. What would you like people to take away from your drawings, especially of your mother? Maybe that there's, there is beauty even in a downward spiral. So I think that's what I would want them to take from my drawings. And then secondarily that, hey, I could do this too. I would want people to think that this is within their reach and it, it's a possibility. We've been speaking with cartoonist Sharon Rosenzweig about the use of comics to tell stories about illness and health, also known as graphic medicine. Sharon's a former professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and co-creator with her husband, comedian Aaron Freeman, of the book The Comic Tour, Reimagining the Very Good Book. Sharon's book In Progress has the working title Spiral Notebook. It's a project she started when her mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode at agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, where you can view and learn more about Sharon's stunning work. Sharon, if people would like to get in touch with you, how can they reach you? By email, S, like in Sharon, B, like in boy, R, like in Rosenzweig, and then Z, like in zebra, W-E-I-G, like in George, at gmail.com. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sharon. Take it easy. You too. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes. Head on over to agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z.com. And use our search feature to discover some great conversations with guests who talk about issues of specific interest to you. You'll get tips, find links to useful information, laugh, cry, and best of all, know you're not alone. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. Thank you.